0: Hi, this is Rachel Scherr, former Backlot Tour cast member, and you're listening to Stories of the Magic with Randy Crane. Welcome to Stories of the Magic, an unofficial Disney podcast with your host, Randy Crane. Hear stories from Disney cast members, Imagineers, artists, and more right here on Stories of the Magic. Now, here's your host, Randy Crane.
1: Welcome to Episode 51 of Stories of the Magic. I'm Randy, your host. Thank you for joining me. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash storiesofthemagic. There's over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player, and one in particular that I really hope you'll choose, but I'll tell you about that later. In this episode, we conclude our two-part interview with author, speaker, urban planner, and Disney historian Sam Genoway. In part one, we talked about how he became interested in Disneyland, how he uses the park to explain urban planning concepts to people, Disneyland as Walt's souvenir bucket from his travels, why he decided to write Walt and the Promise of Progress City and the two purposes of that book, Walt's vision for Epcot the city and his interest in three-dimensional design, what a sense of place means and how it affects guests, the writing of his second book, The Disneyland Story, and more. In this episode, we pick up with a story he was telling about some famous trees in Disneyland, and then Sam talks about some insights on the history and changes of Fantasyland, The practice wall on Main Street, I'll bet you've never seen it, but you might want to check it out after this. New Orleans Square is Disney's first representation of a real, live place. Why the People Mover was designed and built? The two budgets for each attraction, especially in Walt's time. The difference between the idea for how lands were originally created and what they're doing now, and how today is more similar to Universal Studios than the way Walt Disney did things. Understanding how generational change affects the use of space? If Disney were to decide to do a Marvel land or a Star Wars land, what they would have to keep in mind to do it right and do it well? This is a really interesting conversation that you probably haven't thought of in quite this way. How a sense of place is the secret to Disneyland and the original virtual reality machine. Disneyland as a, quote, giant salad as described by Rolly Crump the subjects he's generally invited to speak on, his presentation at the Walt Disney Family Museum about Mineral King and why it was so much fun, a brief tribute to Diane Disney Miller, something he never gets to talk about, some of the ways Tomorrowland was testing new technology that most people never realized, and giving credit to Bill Martin. What inspires him? His advice to you for following your dreams, and of course, shameless plug time. Now, rather than waiting until after the interview, I have a little bit of news about my book, Faith in the Magic Kingdom. I mentioned in the last episode that I might have a giveaway for a copy of the audiobook. Well, I do. I'll tell you the details after the interview for exactly what you need to do to be entered to win a copy, but it's easy, I promise. Now, a brief word from a fellow podcaster and friend, and then it's time to turn the page and continue this story.
2: Have you ever experienced uncontrollable bouts of geekdom? If so, the Anomaly podcast may be right for you. In clinical studies, anomalies interviews, convention reports, commentary on geek culture, games, sci-fi and fantasy television, literature, and film provided a feeling of fullness while promoting health for optimal geekiness. The Anomaly podcast is not suitable for all people. Only geekily active cool chicks with a healthy sense of humor should listen. Geekily active cool guys should listen too. Anomaly has resulted in sudden fits of squee. Broad smiles may appear without warning and could become permanent. The most common side effects of Anomaly are unconsciously joining in the gamma quadrant golf clap, out loud, at work, to the amusement of co-workers and attempting to interject opinions aloud to hosts who can't hear the listener. But in all cases, the benefits outweigh the risks. Ask your Anomaly if you're healthy enough for entertainment of this caliber. You don't need a doctor's messy handwriting to obtain a free subscription. Anomaly is available over-the-counter at Stitcher Radio and in the iTunes, Zune, and BlackBerry stores. You can also stream episodes of Anomaly and Anomaly Supplemental at AnomalyPodcast.com. That's A N O M A L Y podcast.com. Just one one hour episode provides 24 hours of relief and never leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Music by JewelBeat.com. And now,
0: this week's interview on Stories of the Magic.
3: Trees either. Oh, um, wow. One of my favorite trees is when you're on the Hippo Pool the next time uh-huh. on the on the Jungle Cruise. There's a huge, huge banyan tree. And Bill Evans and Harper Golf who designed the ride, were driving through Beverly Hills one day, and they saw this big banyan tree. And they went, "Oh, that'd be perfect!" <laughs> so they go to the guy's front door. And they're like, "Hi, you know, we're from a thing called Disneyland, and we really like that tree, and we think it would be really neat. Would you, would you like to sell it to us?" The guy's going. Things a giant weed. <laughs> you, if you plant another tree, you can just go ahead and take it. So the banyan tree that's back there moved all the way down from Beverly Hills.
1: Wow. So, and
3: it was something they found. Uh, people who live in Pasadena, there's a lot of Pasadena trees here, too. Apparently, they used to drive around Pasadena and offering people 100 bucks for a full-grown tree. So, <laughs> so the planting, I think that was, that was very special about the landscape around here. Yeah,
1: definitely. And, in fact, on the subject of trees, there's one tree in particular that I really like. Uh-huh. And I tried, when I was writing about it once, to, do- to see if I could find any documentation about it. And all I found is a couple of pictures. Uh, It's that large tree uh, right by the entrance queue to um, the Mad Tea Party. Oh, okay. Which, as I understand it, that actually moved... Uh, from a, kind of near where the pirate ship was, which is now about where uh, yeah. Dumbo is. Yeah. And so I saw a picture of it there, and a picture of it being moved, and a picture of it in the new location. <laughs> That's
2: cool, okay. But
1: I don't have specific dates on anything, or uh, you know, there's any other specifics about it. You, you know, that is, a, that is a hard
3: part about doing this, was uh, trying to get everything in, in order, uh, you know, I, I tried very hard to co- create a very readable book. That's back to the Ken Burns thing, mm-hmm. and and they have a fun story about it. And and there's if there's a anything about Progress City is a little bit of an academic book, but that's just the nature of the subject. This was not designed to be academic at all. It was really designed just to be a fun read and bring back memories or spark things that you want to explore further. So I'm glad that that did that. Mm-hmm. And and the hard thing is figuring out when things were moved, and a lot of it was finding. Pieces of evidence of something else that I could I could substantially date, but yeah, you know the whole fantasy land was chopped up and moved all over the place. You know, right. they, it was very much it was a dead end for a long time. You used to have everything kind of piled up on top of each other. You know, the buildings themselves—the two side buildings on the sides of the castle—they were just buildings out of a catalog. They literally went to a man. They went to a warehouse catalog, and those just happened to be two standard buildings that were the right size. Huh. And that's what those two buildings were. The same thing for the Tomorrowland—they were standard buildings, so they were very cheap to build. And what's weird <laughs> is they're still there. Right now, they have popped out the back walls of those buildings to make the Fantasyland dark rides about twenty-five percent longer. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And trees were moved around a lot. I mean, because they had them. They had them here. In fact, you kind of notice it gets the trees back here kind of skimpy now because they sort of forgot to plant trees for a number of years, especially in the 90s. And they didn't uh. maintain the forest back here, and trees do have a limited life. And they started passing away, and, it, and now that's why it, you can see the parking garage from back here, which you never saw before.
1: Interesting. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Um, and... Speaking of dating little pieces of things, uh-huh. are you familiar with, and I'm sure you are, um, the wall there down Center Street, where the drinking fountain is now? With yes, all the, the, pra- the, pr- of- the practice wall. The practice wall, right. My understanding is that dates back approximately to park opening, if not a bit before... And it's going to kind of move around a couple of times. Did you find anything about that?
3: Uh, no, I always thought it was in the same place. Okay, it was designed to. Uh, you know, they were they were experimenting with a lot of different things to shove up behind there. I guess we're going to get a walkway. Is the latest rumors, but for a long time, part of that was going to be an international street. Part of that was going to be uh, a Liberty Square. So there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of different things that were proposed for the backside of that.
1: Uh huh. Okay, so they were just they were experimenting, but it does date back. Yeah, it that goes. Far. It's pretty
3: old. And then okay. the other the other thing that I thought was really quite amazing was uh, also to learn that New Orleans Square was designed to be a practical solution too. At the time, Walt was very seriously working on the EPCOT project, and he wanted to challenge his Imagineers to not only really create a fanciful representation of a theatrical genre, Frontierland or Tomorrowland, whatever. New Orleans Square was designed to be the first representation of a real life place so it's the first place if you think about it, it has water stains on the wall it's uh-huh. not as pristine as everything else in in disneyland it was designed to look like a specific place at a specific time and era and even at a specific season so that 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 really intrigued me and that was because walt wanted his guys to practice to do do that so that would be part of the centerpiece of epcot which does very realistic looking uh set pieces Okay, interesting. So that was an experiment. Same thing with the People Mover. The People Mover wasn't designed to be a ride. That was designed to be in Epcot, and Walt figured, I'll put it in the park, and if it works in the park, it'll certainly work in Epcot. Look what happened with my monorail. And so that was really designed to be an Epcot project, but being tested over here.
1: Okay, yeah, I think I remember hearing about that, or possibly reading it in your book, yes. I'm not sure, but yeah, it seems like this is a great kind of proving ground for a lot of those things that people. If, if it can go through do. millions of visitors and
3: survive, it can go through <laughs> anything, and that was one of the reasons he wanted to build Epcot, was he figured that he could, if somebody was going to invent a new microwave, you know, nowadays we do all these lab tests and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. His idea is we'll just give everybody a microwave, and then we'll give them six months, and then we'll ask them what they think of it, and if it broke or something went wrong with it, then we tell them, and then they fix it, and then it comes back into the work. It was a very pragmatic way of of solving problems. Uh That's another one of those Waltisms. that if you really drill down far enough, it's usually a pretty practical reason why he did a lot of stuff. It's not anything very fanciful.
1: Right. And and that kind of real-world testing, even when they try to avoid it today, they still end up stuck with it.
3: Bob (laughs) Gertz explained to me once that there was always two budgets. There was the budget to deliver it, and then there was the budget to actually make it work, and that budget was the budget coming out of the park's operations. So they would deliver it to the point where they feel like, well, we're we're pretty thi- we're pretty sure it might work, and then we'll fix it. We'll use the other money so we can use it on other things. So that was a Roger Brogy thing that, that
1: uh, taught Bob very well. So uh, right. So uh, and to kind of look ahead to something, uh-huh. and uh, you mentioned the rumor just briefly of what they kind of were talking about putting behind. Uh, the east side of Main Street now yeah. is kind of that that path Alleyway, bringing a little bit of Disneyland Paris to California. That's right, <laughs> exactly. Uh, we've been covering it and, and everything like that. But there's also rumors floating around out there of either like a Star Wars land or possibly Marvel land or something like that. Sure, um, Is it, isn't that interventions?
3: <laughs> pretty much. It's becoming Marvel land. I'm yeah. noticing now. So, yeah. <laughs>
1: and then it's getting a, heck, a lot more traffic than yeah. it was getting before. Oh, bring uh, back the
3: carousel of progress, if you ask
1: me. Oh, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> but if they were to do. Something like a Star Wars or a Marvel land, either as a replacement for Tomorrowland, which would freak a bunch of people out, <laughs> and I wouldn't be happy with it either. But I yeah. remember you know, reading in your book and hearing you talk about the land. The original lands of Disneyland were kind of the popular genres of the day. They or, were. They
3: were. The, Disneyland is ultimately it's a giant TV set that you walk through, or a movie theater that you walk through, and that, that uh, each land represented a genre. And within the genre, you could have specific programming of intellectual properties, but they all fit tied nicely together within a genre. And that was the original idea, And that the commercials for television would be going to the bathroom or buying food or buying a souvenir. That would be the commercials. That was the attitude that he wanted from the park. I'm currently working on a history of Universal Studios book. Uh, That's the current project, so a lot of my head's in where Universal is. Mm -hmm. And and in a weird sort of way, uh, things like Cars Land... And what they're talking about, Now, I don't usually deal in rumors. That's that's other people that I know. I'm a historian, so it's either it had already happened, and right. that's how I usually get into it. But in a weird sort of way, it's 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 sort of signifying that Disney's becoming more influenced by Universal now than Universal is influencing Disneyland by creating entire lands centered around one specific intellectual property. And you have to be careful because if the intellectual property. These things go away. Remember, E.T. was one of the biggest movies ever. Now nobody knows who E.T. is anymore. So you have to be really careful. Right. You know, uh, if you're going to make an entire land around one specific intellectual property. And that's now become the new way of Disney's working. All their expansions tend to be very intellectual property specific towards a specific uh, uh, item, and that's not very Walt-like. That's very counter to what Walt was coming up with. In a sense, it makes it, I think, a lot easier because then, obviously, they have to make sure that the theme matches whoever owns the license for the property. So that's why Cars Land turned out so great, mm-hmm. I think, is because, you know, you had a guy, in John Lasseter, who was very, very concerned about making sure everything was really right, and so he had a protector of the, the intellectual property. In the long run, I think that the idea that Walt had, which was being genre versus property-specific, still is the best way to go because it allows you a certain amount of flexibility that you don't have. You know, if, if for some reason the whole mindset of Cars ever goes away, you're going to have a lot of people walking through there going, huh, I don't get this. <laughs> Where if it's genre, you have Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, which, you know, very few people know that was from Winds of the Willow. And in fact, the story of Mr. Toad doesn't have anything to do with the movie at all, really. <laughs> right. It has to do with just a very small slice of what was in the movie. But because it fit within the genre, it still is timeless. Mm-hmm. So there right. is there is there is something about there is something about having timeless genres with intellectual properties fit in those timeless genres that I thought was a bit more brilliant than where they're going with lately.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. Uh, but at the same time, Carsland because they do have that protector of the intellectual property, um, and they've I think kept the lessons that you talked about that yeah. Walt taught Disneyland uh, as far as uh, you know immersiveness and and uh, you know lack of visual contradiction and all of these things. So it works, at least for the time being. Yeah,
3: and, and one so. nice thing about that as a property is is that you're really speaking to two different generations. You've got of course the youngsters who are very much into the car's toys, but it appeals to baby boomers, the whole Route 66 mythology. Right. So for now it really is a multi-age project. But if you think about it, in ten years from now, the kid who's really into toys from cars probably doesn't care less about cars. He's a teenager and the baby boomers are all going to be dead. So you know, <laughs> so there, there, is a, there is a point in time where it's going to skip between generations, and it's going to only rely on its good design, because mm-hmm. people aren't going to recognize the intellectual properties right. as much. And then the time will come back around, and those kids will become parents, they'll get their kids in the, the toys, cars, because we all sort of do that sort of thing. So that's what happens when you take the really long view and designing theme parks, is to understand how the generational changes are going to impact the use of the space as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. So, and I don't know if you have an answer to this, but from an okay. urban planner perspective, if they were to do, let's say, a Star Wars land, whether here at Disneyland or at Disney's Hollywood Studios or wherever, if they were to do a land like that, what would they have to keep in mind to make sure they did it right and did it in a way that it endures like you know the rest of the park does? It's going to have
3: to, you know, I think, that the, I think Cars Land has set a... Um, Set a new standard as far as Quality of what Imagineering Is capable of doing And so it'd have to match at least that standard And probably end up having to exceed it Because although Cardland's mythology is very popular Star Wars is be- beyond that mm-hmm. To the point where One screw in the wrong place Somebody's going to notice it and tell you which movie story That that screw's in the wrong place from uh, in a sense, it's the same challenge that Universal had with Harry Potter, where no matter how much you know about the intellectual property, your fan base is going to know more about it than you ever will. <laughs> so you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah. Um, and then how they fit the other attractions in within Star World, Star Wars, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, at Hollywood Studios, it makes all the sense in the world because you could create basically a backlot set where you have different facades and different areas representing different scenes from the movies, and, and everybody can have a little bit of something there. Here, you know, you've got to pick a specific time, a specific place, a specific... Era, Because you know the Star Wars mythology Spreads so long and, and you can't mix them up Because that would create visual contradictions Within the mythology of Star Wars mm-hmm. So you kind of have to pick a particular place or time It's kind of like the new Star Wars ride If you think about it It's the adventure continues But it's a prequel and there's a lot of things. The robot that's supposed to be piloting your ship's far more um, articulated than Rex. So were we going backwards in technology? You know, And I'm not even a big Star Wars person like that, and even that doesn't make sense to me at times. Mm. So they're going to have to really pay attention to that because they're going to get beat up immersively if they don't get it right.
1: Right. Yeah, and I think probably the biggest piece, and it's the one I hadn't thought of, is picking a specific time and place. And they, they have they to. can't just... You making a mashup of whenever, wherever. Yeah, that's sort of. It seems like I, I talked to um, John Parker. Yeah, and. Uh, he worked on some of the Disney California Adventure stuff back when it first opened, and said that, in his opinion, one of the things that kind of caused a problem there, as far as the guest perspective, is there wasn't that sense of place that we talked about earlier. Guests didn't know where and when they were, so they didn't know how they were supposed to behave, and what was supposed to happen around
3: them. Because, you know, this is, ultimately this is a movie set, it is a television set, and and there are are rules about how you do that, and I, I do list the rules in the book, but, you know, they have to have a certain place, it has to have a certain time, it has to have a certain weather, you know, if you're on Main Street at the Magic Kingdom in Florida, for instance, it's always Fourth of July, Mm -hmm. and that Fourth of July is what explains why there's bunting up and flags, and why there's always a parade every day, so you have to have a specific time and place, you know, New Orleans Square was a very specific time and place of New Orleans prior to the Civil War, Mm -hmm. which is why you could have had Aunt Jemima giving out pancakes just down the street there, because it seemed to fit very, very well, you know, right, Um, and and that's what that's why uh, It's in a weird sort of way why the first Tomorrowland worked, because it was supposed to be 1986. Mm -hmm. It's why the second Tomorrowland, the 67 one, is brilliant. Because what it really was, was it was Epcot in Florida in California. It was Walt testing a lot of ideas for Epcot in California. And then the 1998 Imagination Beyond Tomorrowland just didn't have anything. There was nothing that was tying it all together other than the sort of steampunky kind of look that they were going for. Right. Uh, But there was nothing that tied all of the elements together so that the sum of the parts was greater than the whole. You know, you get that in Fantasyland, you get that in Frontierland, New Orleans Square, and on Main Street. But even today, Tomorrowland seems to be, there's something lacking that's there. There's there's not a there there, and and that's what they got to fix. So anything's better than what they have right now, and I wish them all the luck in the world.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> so, And in fact, as we were just talking again about that sense of place, I had mentioned something uh, that I meant to to reference as we were talking about that same subject earlier, uh-huh. uh, as something that I've told people as I've kind of walked them around the park a little bit, and said that you, know, you have this sense of place that it defines the circumstance, def- it kind of gives you an idea of where you are, but it also tells you What role you have. Exactly, exactly. And that
3: is that is the secret to Walt's Disneyland, is that what Walt wanted to do is he wanted to allow you to do something you could never, ever do. He wanted to create the first virtual reality machine, and that is that when you walk into his parks, that you are immediately in a different time, a different place, in a different setting, and that the story is so compelling around you that you become part of that. So I'm the kind of guy that when I walk into Frontierland, I tend to walk along the boardwalk bow legged because that's what cowboys did. <laughs> you know, and you and you start to adopt that. And Walt wanted people to take on the role, even to the degree where when you won the original dark rides, you were Snow White. You were Mr. Toad. You were The the Darling family You weren't really Peter Pan You were going with Peter Pan Um, You were the Darling family You were a first person character And for a long time A lot of his guys said People aren't going to get this Walden For a long time People didn't get it They, They fixed that in the early 80s But the idea was You were the one taking on the role This became your stage set For you to act out whatever fantasies And that's one of the reasons Why the genre concept works so well because you didn't have to like that particular movie you just had to enjoy the genre and then find something in there to love really crump i think summed up disneyland one of the best ways which was he called it a giant salad And that salad had something for everybody. It wasn't just tomatoes, lettuce, and a little dressing, but it had cucumbers, and it had olives, and there were things that you probably didn't like, and you'd push to the side, but there was always going to be something in this marvelous salad that you would just really love, and occasionally, you'd find something in the salad that would really surprise you and make it go, oh, that's memorable, (laughs) and that's the way he described the part. There's somewhere something for everybody here, hopefully.
1: Yeah, and... I think you're right, and that's why whenever someone tells me, you know, I just don't like Disneyland. First of all, I try to take their temperature, because I think they might not be feeling well. Yeah. But you need to look at all the pieces, because you may not like all of it, but there's something
3: that you like. I, I walked with a, a good friend of mine who is a wonderful architect. He's very much a modernist architect, and the idea of this place is just completely something he doesn't like. <laughs> just just intellectually has a problem with this concept of manipulating people through physical space. Okay, okay. So so, and, and he's great. He's a great architect, and I, I, I you know it's one of the reasons I wrote Progress City was because I have a lot of architect and planner friends who poo poo the parks, and then when they read the book, they start like, "Go, all right." I begrudgingly give you some reason. For it. <laughs> there, there may be something there, but we stood a good half hour in front of uh, it's a small world facade. He loved it. He just thought it was the most playful, wonderful thing in all the world and just loved it to death. So there, there was something for everybody, and he remembered that and took that back and actually wrote about how that facade was just a brilliant piece of work. So, yeah, there is, there is something for everybody if you look here.
1: <laughs> I love that. That's great. And especially, I think when he did that, without meaning to, he kind of had a chance to become a kid. Again, which is another piece of what Disneyland does. Oh, thing. yeah, And exactly. so, in, in experiencing the playfulness and the whimsy, and just enjoying it so much, it's like there, you've got a piece of what Disneyland does. Exactly, for you.
0: it
3: gave him that. It gave him that smile. That's, mm-hmm. That that
1: quality without a name that
3: that, uh, that that makes the hair in the back of your neck stand up, but you can't ever really describe to anybody why it's doing that. But it's doing that, and, and at Disneyland, there's a lot of places that do that more than any other theme park, more than any other Disney theme park, there are places where you can just go and relax. You were talking about the Court of Angels earlier. Mm -hmm. The reason why I think you're upset that that's gone is that some people would argue, well, it wasn't a very busy place. There was nobody ever there. But that's what the splendor of the place was. It was never busy. It was a place that you would discover on your own, and then you would take personal ownership. That was my place. The Wizard of Bra's Porch on Mm -hmm. Main Street, next to the Silhouette Shop that's it for me That that I get. that's the, the ultimate zen view I love sitting up there and everyone I ever tell to do it when they come off of it they'll like, go oh it's great um, for Walt Disney World fans the two rocking chairs against the side of the Hall of Presidents is another place that is just splendid I wrote A fair chunk of the Frontierland section Of the Disneyland book Sitting on the picnic bench on on Tom Sawyer Island Uh Because it was a great place There was a clean bathroom I could get a soda And I could write And, And I was never bugged by anybody Even on the busiest days So there's a lot of these little hideaway places That people will walk upon Trip upon Smile to themselves And then they take personal ownership And when they take those little places away That really hurts people and that's something I'm not exactly sure that the modern Disney management appreciates enough. And that's something that was very, very important to Walt. In fact, they—they they, is the equivalent of a movie where there were segments between major scenes that tied you over from one scene to another. Those were those moments. The Petrified trees, one of those. Mm-hmm. The Court of Angels was one of those. Sitting Where We're Sitting was probably another one of those where you're watching the boats go by and I, you feel like you're in the middle of the woods here because... Kind of are Yeah you know? right But it's lovely And you're not going to find this In the middle of most cities And you feel like You're way out here Those were very important And I, I, I'm sad to say That those are Areas that are sort of Slipping away More and more and more As they try to monetize Every square foot Within the parks mm-hmm. yeah. Which is why the book Is called The Unofficial Guide Because there are Occasions in the book That I actually Just sort of come out And say the truth And it's not necessarily The happiest Of the Disney truths It's just the reality And you have to Kind of get
1: into That sort of thing as well Right Yeah Yeah I... I, and I think that's part of taking ownership of it. Yeah, you, know, you you acknowledge that it's a great place, but great doesn't mean perfect. That's right. And, and that's right. there's always you know if if Walt said that you know, Disneyland will never be completed then I think it's safe for us to say, you know, the way it is now, as great as it is, there's always a way that it could be a little bit better. It It, could be plused in some way. That's true. And
3: occasionally they actually get it right and they'll come up with something new that's like, oh, cool, that's a good addition. I like that. Right. So
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I want to talk for just a minute about um, the speaking that you do. I had mentioned in the intro that you've gotten invited to Walt Disney Imagineering and the Walt Disney Family Museum, Disney Creative, and... In places like that. Like I said, I assume you accept most of those invitations that you get. I, I, I'm very, yes, yeah.
3: I'm, I'm happy to talk. If anybody has a Disney Anna group out there or a library or owns a bookstore, let me know. I'll come visit you with this book as well, too.
1: Right. So um, when you're invited to those places, is there a certain subject or range of subjects that you're generally asked to speak on? Sometimes, in the case
3: of the um, in the case of the Walt Disney Family Museum, I was invited to speak on a specific topic, which was the Mineral King Ski Resort. Uh, it was the museum was celebrating the Third Man on the Mountain movie, okay. which is a great movie. It's the inspiration for the Matterhorn, and it's available on video now. And if you've never seen it, it really genuinely is one of the best live action Disney films that they ever did that no one has ever seen. I mean, it's it's, it's really a good film. Uh, so go go rent that one I strongly suggest that. So they're going to celebrate that and they want to talk about Mineral King and for some reason I've become the foremost expert on Mineral King Ski Resort <laughs> because of the research that I did and so I was very very lucky. They asked me to come talk on the topic they they had me uh, invite uh, two speakers to join me. One was David Price which was, who's the son of Harrison Buzz Price who was doing the feasibility reports we talked about him earlier mm-hmm. and my other guest speaker was Ron Miller who's uh, Diane Disney Miller's husband who was the CEO of uh, was president of Walt Disney Productions for a little while Uh, Before getting uh, booted out because of Michael Eisner And so he was my other speaker So I got to meet Ron and Diane and talk with them A lot So that was a a tribute basically to Walt's vision Of what Mineral King would have been An absolutely brilliant project Which should be built somewhere Just thankfully it wasn't built inside of Mineral King (laughs) And I won't get into the details of that Come watch one of those talks Okay, Uh, Disney Creative, I can't talk about the subject matter It was a very specific subject matter On a professional level Okay, Um, But I was sworn to secrecy And I don't want the Disney Blackhawk Helicopters to come after me. <laughs> um, Disneyana clubs, I've done a couple of different talks, usually depending upon uh, the book. So I did one in Progress City. Now I'm running around and I'm doing a talk about uh, the Disneyland story, but because I don't want to tell the whole history of Disneyland, especially Disneyana fans because you know a lot about it, I just talk about some of the screwy things that I learned while writing the books. things that really stood out in my brain the ficus trees for instance was one of them another really weird one was discovering that the the columbia is actually full size <laughs> which I just you'd swear when you look at the bunk blow decks this is like a scale model like all the other things I know. and i was like really that's the, and and i got that from Ray Wallace who was the guy who designed the boat and his family still we're friends with their family and and i got it from his family that no it's the, he pulled out the blueprints from the HMS bounty which was built in the shame shipyard and that was the that's what the Columbia is. So that was that was a really strange one, <laughs> uh, and so I do tweak them for depending upon the audiences. If they people are going to like library talks. I can't get into too much of the weeds because people will just tune. It'd be too much. Disney Anna fans, however, they want everything. They want <laughs> they want all the weird stuff because that you know they want to hear something they hadn't heard before. Uh-huh. So that that's fun. But I love it. I love the talks. Uh, that's kind of what I do for a living. And so the writing was really secondary to the talk. But by writing, it gave me the chance to talk. I've done talks for colleges, uh, USC, Cal State colleges as well, doing Disney talks for Cal State colleges as well. So that's been fun.
1: Wow, okay. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that when you're doing the Disney Anna talks, do you ever have people either during the talk but like during a Q and A time or come up to you after or something and try to like stump you? Oh, all, all the something. time. All the time. All the time, yeah, yeah. And, and
3: I'm the first to say I don't know everything about the parks. Um, I, I, the very first to say I don't remember everything that I even wrote in the book. <laughs> it is, is, that's why I usually carry a copy around so I can look in the index if I get stumped on something. Right. Um, and, yeah, people like to play the stump thing. People do ask, ask like me about asking me about gossip stuff, and I always say I'm a historian, so I only talk about it that it already happened, that somebody else wants to do that. And then I learn a lot too Because learn a lot from people who worked here mm-hmm. And they'll give me a funny interesting little story That kind of adds some shade And those stories I actually record Because I would like to do a, a follow up version of this at some point A second edition And so wherever I learn I made a mistake Which thankfully there aren't too many Or I learned something
1: new that can embellish I'd like to put those in the next version Sure, yeah that makes a lot of sense so, and, and if I could ever interview Ron Miller for Stories of the Magic, I would be ecstatic. I don't know <laughs> yeah, that that's yeah. ever going to
3: happen, but <laughs> it's great, great guy. So. It scared me to death though, because before that talk at the Walt Disney Family Museum, you know, I had done a little bit of the setup to show him and David what the presentation was. We'd worked it, and then five minutes before the talk, he turned to me and goes, "I think you've got this one down pretty well. I don't think you really need me because he's, he's an amazingly shy, humble man. Uh-huh. Like, no, Ron, nobody's here to see me. Nobody's here to talk about Mineral King. They really are here to hear you for the very first time." talking in the museum that you and your wife started and he turned out to be brilliant wonderful storyteller and then what was really fun is he talked about his skiing prowess and then Diane got up and started saying things about how bad of a skier he was and, and it was just fun to see these two having a spat in front of the, in front of the group talking about who was the better skier so <laughs> I thought that was terrific but but the Disneyland story could only exist because of Diane Disney Miller mm-hmm.
1: um
3: I, you know there's 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 a lot of quotes so I had to get permission Uh, to use bits of the book from different people who own the rights for it. And I use the e-ticket magazine a lot. And I give a lot of quotes from there. And that's owned by the Walt Disney Family Foundation. And without Diane's acceptance, I I could not have published the book. I really needed that to make it happen. Mm -hmm. I wrote her, asked her what I was doing, sent her some information about it. Within 10 minutes, she wrote back going, please, 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 let's do this. This would be great. Thank you very much. And I got to bring you back to the museum, and that's how I get, I'm getting my second speaking gig there. Wow, that's fantastic. So, um, thank you, Diane Disney Miller. You
1: made my book possible. <laughs> definitely, definitely. So, now, you do a lot of speaking, a lot of QA times with that. You've been on a lot of podcasts, uh-huh. you've been asked a ton of questions, and everything, and probably about the same six questions over uh-huh. and over with uh-huh. a little embellishment here and there. But is there anything that you never get asked that you wish people would ask you? Oh geez,
3: um, well you know we went through a few of them. Like today, the, the Columbia was one. The ficus trees is always a fun story. The California living one. Um, something that somebody has never really asked me that I've always wanted to talk about. I miss the people mover. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, more and more and more. I, I really, I really do miss the people mover. Um, a, a, a lot, because I'm, I'm really recognizing the People Mover was more important than we all think. You know, the when you look at the '67 Tomorrowland, there's a lot of strange little facts that are about that that we sort of don't appreciate today. You know, Walt really wanted Tomorrowland to lead the industry. Mm-hmm. So there's things that are in Tomorrowland that were brand new, like, for instance, in the restaurant, the the, 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 the restaurant, where, you know, i talking about where the... Tomorrowland Terrace. Out. Tomorrowland Terrace, thank you. Yeah. Okay. Um, that was the first time Walt was revolutionizing how you made hamburgers, and that was the first time that somebody was using a grill like they use at Burger King, where you put the meat on one end and it goes through the grill, uh-huh. and it pops up cooked on the other end. They They created that new technology for the Tomorrowland Terrace as a way of showing off how in the future you'd be able to make your hamburgers (laughs) which I thought was great there was another one which was the stage the Tomorrowland stage Uh was the first performance stage using monitors so the musicians could actually hear themselves. This is before really? people used monitors, which I thought was utterly fascinating. But once yeah. again, it was using the park as a way of using new technology to test it so it could be used in other applications. So, um, And then they were very proud of the fact that that the walk to every single door of every attraction in Tomorrowland was something like a quarter of a mile or something like that. But whatever it was, it was a number of steps. So they were showing you how efficient walking would be in the future. And the idea of the People Mover was that was supposed to be the first ride that you took. It was Tinkerbell spreading dust. It was like getting on the train. It would give you a preview of everything that was in Tomorrowland mm. so that when you were done, you could get off and know exactly which attraction you wanted or which shop that you wanted to go to next. So the idea that he was giving you this bird's eye view was con- constant. So the train gave you a bird's eye view of all the different lands in the park. The right. Skyway did it. The Mark Twain does it in what sense, giving you a preview. So there were a lot of these little previews, and that was very important because that's how you did it in theater. You want to give people a little taste so that they want to come back. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of that preview stuff has has been missed. Okay. Um, And and that's something I think the park is kind of lacking. And then another thing that um, comes to my mind was the layering. There's a guy named Bill Martin, who I think was absolutely brilliant. And the Disneyland, I think a lot of us really love, came from his mind. And he was the guy who figured out the layering of putting... Tom Sawyer Island in the middle and having a bunch of different boat rides go around it so you had a lot of different vehicles using the same physical space. Uh-huh. You didn't, you, it was a great way of spending very little money and having a bunch of rides and the same thing with the great Tomorrowland where you had at one point you had the rocket jets way up high then the people mover then the utopia cars and then you had the submarines below grade you had movement in all these different levels And they were all layered on top of each other, and he was the guy who figured out how to stick the Matterhorn, the Submarine Lagoon, and the monorail tracks, and the people mover tracks all in the same place. And I just think that the guy doesn't get enough credit. And it was this multiple things going on at some place that I think is the thing that really fascinates most of us of our age and is something that's really kind of lacking now in the parks. Mm-hmm. And I'd love
1: to see coming back that layering. But that was a Bill Martin thing, and he deserves credit for that. Okay. Well I'm glad that he's getting some credit here. Yeah. So He was great. Uh, yeah, definitely. And, and you're right. I think we are lacking some of the kinetic you know, energy and experience that there was. And hopefully... In some way, they've managed to bring some of that back.
3: Yeah, they just have so. to remember, they call it Disneyland Park, and in Walt's mind, it was always park. It was always a park first that had rides, that never had rides. It had shows and attractions right. and adventures. It has only one ride, that's Mr. Right. Toad's Wild ride. That's right, that's right. <laughs> uh, but ultimately, that's it was that ability just to go and just hang out, Mm-hmm. And that still exists today, but it seems to be existing less and less and less. Those opportunities for crying those, finding those spaces is becoming
1: a little bit more difficult, and, and, and I
3: hope that they come back on that.
1: Agreed, yeah. And something I just thought of, so quick sidetrack before we get to the last couple of questions. Yeah. as It came to mind, as you mentioned, people wanting to come back in the preview. I've heard a couple of times that Walt said that Uh, in order to fully experience Disneyland, a person would have to visit seven times. Have you ever... Did you find that in any of your research or anything? I
3: never heard anything specific to that. There's a lot of documentation. He wanted a... Here's a way I think of answering that. I, I never found any documentation as to a specific how many times you needed to return, but I think that this sort of sums up where his head was with Disneyland. Um, Exitensio, as you know, he wrote the script for the Pirates of the Caribbean. Right. And, and that was the last ride. Well, he, he saw construction here. He never saw the ride here. Mm-hmm. He saw the. Um, he saw the auctioneer in full operation, uh-huh. so he did see that, so he saw some of the audio animatronics. He certainly went on the ride a billion times because he was on the, went on the model, and the model was very, very detailed, and it was at his eye level when he would go through it, so he experienced it from the model. And then one time, he was working with Exotencio, and they were going through the model with the soundtrack. Okay. And X was a little disappointed, because everything was sort of overlapping, and he told Walt that he was kind of embarrassed, and he really wanted to try to get it right so people could truly understand the story a bit better. And and Walt turned to me and says, no, he says, no this is perfect. I, I don't want everybody to get it all at one shot. He said, you know, if you think about it, the best parties are the ones where you go and there's always some conversation that you can kind of fade in and out of and there's always interesting conversations and And what I want to do in Pirates of the Caribbean is to create that kind of atmosphere where you're going through it and you'll pick up a little bit of this and you'll pick up a little bit of that, but you know you didn't get everything, like a good cocktail party, so you want to come back and hear a little bit more. And that's why Pirates is still my favorite ride of all the rides in the park, is because you're always going back, and there's always something a little bit different, there's something that's a little bit changed, or there's just something you never really noticed before, Mm -hmm. And, and it's this cocktail lounge kind of atmosphere and I think that's where Walt's head was with the park is you could never grasp everything at once it was always changing he knew that the trees and the plants would always be changing so you could never really capture that you'd have to keep coming back that's the brilliance of Disneyland that's why it's so deep into our hearts and why we spend so much time on it I think
1: yeah I think you're right so and now with Walt and the Promise of Progress City you can understand some of it intellectually and that's right like you were saying earlier when you're, people who, you're going back again Now you can put on just the right air of minor condescension the, <laughs> Exactly you know, Explain exactly. it to people and it, you don't
3: Well I'll tell you what <laughs> the, this, this year's California American Planning Association Conference Is going to be at the Disneyland Hotel in September <laughs> I'm looking forward to that Because that means all these planners They're coming to my territory <laughs> They're coming to my turf <laughs> So uh, we'll be having some fun
1: with that one <laughs> nice. That'll be fun, that'll be great so, last couple of questions yes. to wrap up here, and then I'll give you shameless plug time, and you can talk okay, all excellent. about the books and everything. Uh, so what inspires you? You know, I, it's curiosity. That was one of Walt's things as well. It's
3: curiosity. It's always the fascination. There's always something new to learn. There's always something that's around the corner that you didn't understand. It's it's the the high is searching for that aha moment. You know, when I, when I figured out... That's why New Orleans Square was there. It was a larger berm. Oh my god! And then all of a sudden, a lot of other things start clicking into place. Mm-hmm. So it's always looking for that aha moment. Why did this happen? Where? where what? 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 And, and it, there's so much, and it's always changing. And so I, I'm, I'm I'm driven by that constantly. Um, and then I and then the other thing too is that that by writing these books and doing these talks, I've just met some really really incredible people along the way. And that's been that's been really quite fun. Um, the, the biggest inspiration, the reason I wrote Progress City was I was at Walt Disney World, and there's that Randy Pash. Uh Plaque that's next yes. to the uh, that's it's next the to the tea, tea Party uh-huh. that you know um, be good at something that gets you invited to the table. You know, business wasn't very good at the time. I was at Walt Disney World. I saw that plaque and I thought, you know, this is my time to to find something that gets me to the table. Mm-hmm. And and I and I, I wrote the book with that plaque in mind. And what was the most amazing? How it all comes back around was that the talk that Randy gave at Imagineering, the, their their innovative speaker series, was the talk I got to give at Imagineering. I got to give. Give the talk to the same group that Randy Pash got to give in Imagineering. And that's just like, I was just like <laughs> you know, wow, that's, that's what was in the inspiration, and it brought me all back around to give the talk to the same people. Oh. So that that
1: was that was really quite touching. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, a little bit of goosebumps right there for that. That's great. So, and that leads great into the last of the regular questions. All right. Because um, a lot of people who are listening have their own dreams. Maybe they thought about writing a book, or they've heard, you know, Randy's the last lecture, or uh-huh. read the book, or something like that. And they think, you yeah, know, there's this thing I want to do. You know, maybe it's combining their passion for Disney with whatever area of expertise they have. Yeah. But for some reason, they've forgotten it, they've pushed it aside, they've been told it's impractical, something like that. And so they're not doing it, or maybe they've even forgotten about it by yeah. now. What advice would you have for that person? Oh, do it. But do it for
3: completely selfish reasons as well. Um, I, When I write, I try to write for an audience of one, which is myself. I want to find something I find interesting. Because then if nobody else cares about it or if people poo-poo it or if it gets negative reviews, it doesn't matter as long as I can feel like I, I, I'm pleased with the product myself. Um, it's just, it's, it's fun. You need to express, You need to stretch your brain every once in a while by doing the thing that's really close to you and doing it for yourself. And if it happens to reach a wider audience, so be it. And I honestly believe that that's why Walt built Disneyland. He he really didn't build this place, when you look at it, for visitors to come here. He really built it because his wife wouldn't let him have the lily bell in his backyard anymore. And Ward Kimball wouldn't sell him the (laughs) Chloe. So he wanted to buy a train and run a big steam railroad train. And so the park gave him an excuse to have a train. And then he just had to figure out other things to help pay for the train. <laughs> and he did it really for himself. And all the attractions that he did, he, he did them really because he was curious and he wanted it to happen. And, and it was, you know, give him a real show. The, the, the submarine lagoon was originally going to be a glass bottom boat like they had near Catalina. Mm-hmm. But Walt was like, let's give him a real show. Let's put him in a submarine. I'd like to go in a submarine. <laughs> and so that was the early inspiration for virtually every attraction was he was just curious. And wanted to somehow or other express that because he was curious. That's why he didn't like the Midgetopia, And it was one of the reasons it was one of the first rides removed because he couldn't ride in it. He couldn't fit in it. It was no fun for him. He's well known for riding around in the mornings before the park opened on the fire truck in his bathrobe uh, and just checking out stuff because it was fun for him to do that sort of thing. So that, that's why I'm really inspired by Walt Disney because he figured I'm going to do the best that I can for the myself as the audience of one and I'm going to hope that other people do it. But if I do really well, they will come. Uh, my books have both been really successful, I think, maybe because there's enough other people that are weird like me out there that found some sort of lob to it. And they started reading it, and then they told their friends. And there's a lot of us out there. So,
0: mm-hmm.
3: yeah, I, I think, we think you realized. need to do it. I think it's it's been one of the most delightful experiences ever. I've never done anything harder in my life, really, than writing books. It's really tough to stretch <laughs> it out. I agree to and, that. <laughs> and, and, and to not get yourself confused and stuff um, uh-huh. at times. But when it comes together, and you know, you write that one little paragraph, you get a sentence that's working, and then the next one's working, and then the whole paragraph comes together, and you're going, oh, that's it. That's a good paragraph. I'm done with that one. I don't have to re-edit that one. <laughs> you know, you, you get that. That's That That keeps you coming back for more. Keeps you coming back for more. And getting to meeting people like you and, and stuff like that. This has been, like I said, it's
1: been great meeting folks like you. Thank you. Yeah, it's... I've it's a lot of fun yeah so great well, okay now we're up to the whole the real reason that you came here shameless plug time <laughs> the, the meeting people is great and all that but shameless plug time you can uh, kind of recap about the books tell people I'm where am on they the, the show go. I'm on the big time now that's all I know
3: uh, <laughs> uh, two books both of them available at amazon.com uh, Pro- Walt and the Promise of Progress City will give you intellectual information about why the parks are as we talked about um and, and you will never, ever look at the parks the same way again. And more importantly, you'll not only look at the parks differently, but you'll look at your own neighborhood differently, mm-hmm. your own town. My hope is that somebody would be inspired enough by something that they read in that book, saw at Disneyland or Disney World, and then took that concept back to make their own neighborhood better. And you can do that with that book because it is about patterns of, of good urbanism. The Disneyland story was just it was a, a project from the heart. It is a wonderful story of a wonderful person, Disneyland, who has now grown up to be a fat, middle-aged guy who's not quite sure whether he wants to hang out with the kids or <laughs> stick around with people his own age. He's, he's sort of in a quandary at the moment. But it was interesting to see how he got to that quandary. And, and, and that one, um, you will also see the park differently. And what will probably end up happening is you'll start stripping the layers of what's there today to see what was there before. And that's really a lot of the fun in the park because so much has changed, but there's just enough things that have stayed where they're at. You can just figure out where the change is at. Mm -hmm. So both books are available on Amazon.com. The uh, unofficial guide is available also on Barnes & Noble. Both of them are available on Kindle. And uh, and most good bookstores carry the Unofficial Guide, the Disneyland Story, the Unofficial Guide as well. I do have a Facebook page, the Disneyland Story, the Unofficial Guide, so please like that uh, as well. And I think that's all the the plugs I can give you at the moment.
1: (laughs) Okay, and I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you. people can just go to the the episode and click right through to everything. This is great.
3: And what a wonderful place to have this talk. It's just a beautiful day for those who don't know it. It's kind of a nice, crisp almost version of a winter
1: day here in California but the skies are coming clear and here comes a freshly painted Mark Twain that's right I think third or fourth trip around while we've been talking that's great, so, great. well thank you so much for your time Sam thank you very it. very much that brings us to the end of this week's show a special thank you to Sam Genoway for being my guest and to you for listening for next time I have one word for you Zanaland. If you know what that means, I know you'll want to be here, and if not, you'll want to tune in to find out. If you're currently doing something because of your love for Disney, written a book, blogging, writing or performing music, art, whatever, and you want to tell people about it and why it matters to you, then I want to hear from you. Email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734 23 story anytime, 24 hours a day. I still want to talk to and hear from people who have worked for Disney, too. So if you've worked for the Walt Disney Company in any capacity and you'd like to share a positive story, again, email me at podcast at com, or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY, anytime, 24 hours a day. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, let me know and we'll talk. And if you're a Disney guest of any Disney experience and had an encounter or an interaction with a cast member that made some extra Disney magic, or had any special Disney experience you want to share, or give a compliment or a thank you for anything Disney's done, I'd love to hear from you, too. Once again, email me, podcast at storiesofthemagic.com, or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY and tell me about your experience. Okay. Now, if you want to win a free copy of the Faith in the Magic Kingdom audiobook, here is all you have to do. Just send an email to that same email address, podcast at storiesofthemagic.com, with audiobook in the subject line. One or two words doesn't matter. Just put audiobook in the subject line. I'd love it if you'd also include a Disney-related story or memory, but you don't have to to qualify to enter. You have until 11.59pm on March 18th of this year, 2014, to send it in, and then I'll randomly choose one winner from all the emails I receive. In the meantime, if you want to get an idea of what the book's about, check out DisneylandDevotional.com, and to hear a sample clip of the audiobook, go to bit.ly faithmkaudio2, and I will put links to all of that in the show notes, so... If you didn't get it, just go to storiesofthemagic.com slash 051 for episode 51, and you'll be able to get the links right there. Now, if you don't win, or if you don't want to wait to find out, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Hopefully, soon you'll be able to get Sam's book, The Disneyland Story, on Audible. But in the meantime, choose from titles like In the Shadow of the Matterhorn by David Smith, Creating Magic or the Customer Rules by Lee Cockerell, both past guests on the show, or of course, my book, Faith and the Magic Kingdom. To download your free audiobook today, go to Audibletrial.com slash stories of the magic. Again, that's Audibletrial.com slash stories of the magic, all one word, for your free audiobook. Subscribe to Stories of the Magic in iTunes, the Xbox Music Store, on the website or you can hear Stories of the Magic while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio. If you like the show, please rate and review Stories of the Magic in iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever else you listen to the show and can rate it. I've been asking for this every episode, so I also want to thank those of you who have done so. I've had three new iTunes reviews since I last looked, and I appreciate every one. You said some very nice things about the show, and I'm really glad that you like it. The more reviews and ratings the show has, especially the positive ones like that, the better it shows up in lists and searches, so it's easier for people to find. So if you haven't written one yet, please take a couple of minutes to do it. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, visit storiesofthemagic.com and leave a comment on the show notes for this or any episode. And while you're there, check out the show notes for useful links from each episode, too. Like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com storiesofthemagic, Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash stories of magic and tweet out that you're listening. Pin it on Pinterest, plus one on Google+. Tell your friends about the show. Keep letting others know that you're listening so they can join in the magic too. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Stories of the Magic. There will be other days and other stories, but this tale is finished.
0: You've been listening to Stories of the Magic with Randy Crane. If you have feedback, want to share a story of your own, or even be a guest on the show, write to Randy at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call our listener feedback line 734-23-STORY. And don't forget to visit the website storiesofthemagic.com for show notes from this and every episode and to leave your comments. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live your dreams and make the magic in your world.